text for this morning's worship service is from Daniel 3, the whole chapter, but especially the three verses, the verses 16, 17, and 18. Let's read that again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 53, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Just wait a moment until you've gotten your candies. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, what makes mankind so cruel. What drove Nebuchadnezzar to do what he did? Without an apparent pang of conscience, he has three men thrown into a blazing hot fire. What made him do that? If he was the only one who ever did something like this, we could dismiss this as something quite out of the ordinary as something that happened a long time ago, and that would not happen today. But we know that's not true. That has happened frequently throughout the ages. When the Christian churches became established, Christians were persecuted all over the Roman Empire. Not only did they lose their jobs and homes and properties, they were also frequently stoned to death this happened to Stephen, the first Christian martyr, or they were burned to death or thrown to the lions. And such things continued to happen the first four centuries after Christ. This kind of thing also happened during the time of the Reformation. Many Reformed believers were burned at the stake or boiled in hot water or hung. That is what happened to a faithful servant such as Guido de Bre, and thousands upon thousands of others. Today is not any better. You hear about the horror stories of the cruelty of man to man in countries such as Syria or Libya or other totalitarian regimes. In such regimes, you put your life in danger if you disagree with or stand in the way of the government. People are tortured and maimed or killed in very cruel and inhumane ways. Such cruelty baffles us. But do you know what is most disturbing about all of this? Well, that is that you and I are essentially not any different. Potentially, we could be doing the same thing. 
You may be surprised to hear that. But that is the sad reality. Now that is what this account concerning the attempted burning of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel, confronts us with. For by nature we hate God and our neighbor. It is only through the Holy Spirit, it is only when you stand firm in your faith that you and I are able to be delivered from that. It is also only through faith that you can withstand the evil that others perpetrate against you. The two go hand in hand. If you don't confess the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme God and as the most important one in all your life, all the days of your life, then you will become like the rest of the world. Then you will actively or passively partake of the evil in this world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up for their faith. They were threatened with horrible death. They stood firm. They did not want to partake of the evil of that world of that day. Would you or I be able to do the same thing? That's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning as you listen to the sermon. The theme for this morning's service is as follows. Only through true faith can you withstand trial by fire. And we will see three things. We will see that true faith makes you, in the first place, stand out. In the second place, stand up. And in the third place, stand free. In the previous chapter, we saw how God revealed his dream to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. Daniel explained to him that the great statue that he saw in his dream represented all the kingdoms and all the powers of the world. And that in the end, all those kingdoms and all those powers would be destroyed by the rock which was cut out, not by human hands, but by God himself. Now, you would think that this would make Nebuchadnezzar think. That now he would stand in awe of God's power and repent. But true to his human nature, that image of God destroying him and his kingdom did not stay with him. Do you know what did stay with him? Do you know what image remained in his head? That head of the statue that was made of gold. For Daniel had told him that that was he. That represented him and his kingdom. He was that head of the gold of that statue. As I said, that's true to human nature. We don't want to deal with reality if it doesn't suit us. We want to go our own way. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, he erects an enormous statue which is entirely made of gold. The proportions are grotesque. 30 meters high and 3 meters wide. It may well be that the measurements include the pedestal on which it stood. Nevertheless, it was humongous. There are those who point out that it would have been impossible for such a statue to have been made entirely of gold. 
However, please keep in mind that it was this same Nebuchadnezzar who devastated the temple in Jerusalem, which David had enriched with 100,000 talents of gold. One talent is approximately 30 kilograms. That was an enormous amount of gold that he plundered just from the temple of Jerusalem. And also keep in mind that the statue probably was plated in gold. Whatever is the case, it says that that image was made of gold. It doesn't state whom that image represents. It may be that it was a likeness of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. More likely, however, and that's what most commentators will also agree, it represented the god Marduk. Marduk was the supreme god of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to pay homage to this god to indicate that his fate, and therefore everybody else's fate, is directly tied to the god Marduk. And that with him, thanks to the god Marduk, the golden age has come. In this way, he wanted to stand out above all the others, he wanted to make a name for himself. Doesn't this remind you of Genesis 11, where we read about the erection of the Tower of Babel? At that time, the people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we can make a name for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, That is human nature. Man wants to stand out from the rest. He seeks to make an impression. He seeks permanence. He seeks eternity. But when you do that, then you take God out of the picture. For then you want your accomplishments, and your abilities, and your greatness, and your own legacy to count for something. And that's impossible without God. You cannot take God out of the picture. If you do, he will humble you. Nebuchadnezzar was obsessed with his own greatness. He wanted to make sure that everybody could see how powerful he is and how he stood out from the rest. He wanted, to, he wanted everyone to know who is in charge. And so he invites dignitaries from all over the empire to the valley of Jura to pay homage to him and to his god, Marduk. Thousands upon thousands were there. The most important dignitaries will have come there with their slaves and with their many servants in tow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there as well. Daniel is not mentioned. We do not know where he is. The Bible doesn't tell us. It may have been that he was away on the king's business. Whatever the case, this gathering was the most impressive and colorful sight you will have ever seen. People were there from all over with their colorful and flowing robes, indicating their cultural backgrounds and their different ranks. There was also a huge orchestra there with many different kinds of instruments, which also added to the importance and the festivity of the occasions. What a sight to behold! It was designed to make everyone stand in awe. And so it did. 
It was one of the most impressive gatherings that you could ever witness and be part of. And then when everything is in place and as Nebuchadnezzar sits on his throne with the important dignitaries beside him and all around him, a horn sounds. And a herald cries out, As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This is the moment everyone had been waiting for. Everyone is now required to fall on their knees and bow before that idol. And everyone does. Except, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They remain standing. They remain standing as the others bow down. Among a sea of bowed heads, they stood erect. Everyone noticed. Everyone was staring at them. Their defiance was obvious. They clearly stood out from the masses. Why? Why didn't they also bow down? That's a funny question, you may say. The answer is obvious, isn't it? They didn't do that because a believer doesn't bow down before a foreign god. But think about it. Is that really what you would expect? Would you or I do the same? What these men did took an enormous amount of courage. No doubt everyone there was very much aware of that furnace nearby that was burning blazing hot. That is why that furnace was put there in the first place. To put fear into the hearts of men. To make them realize that this is not just something trivial. Something they can ignore. No, that if you do, you're going to be thrown into the hell of that fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could easily have found an excuse not to do what they did. After all, did Elisha not give permission to Naaman to bow down to the god Rimon, even though Naaman had become a believer in the true God? For after Naaman had been healed of his leprosy, he saw the truth and the power of God. He firmly believed. Nevertheless, Naaman said to Elisha in 2 Kings 5, verse 18 and 19, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow down there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. But please understand what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to do. He wanted to proclaim himself and his God and his kingdom to be worshipped, to be declared supreme. You see, that was not a problem for all the other people that were there. That was a common practice in those days. And that is why everyone also complied. For he was not telling those people to give up their own gods. Oh no, they can worship them. All they had to do now was to bow down before Marduk as the supreme god. For Nebuchadnezzar, thanks to Marduk, at long last defeated all those kingdoms, and therefore he 
And the god Marduk also defeated their gods. Marduk is now the almighty god. Everybody has to acknowledge that. Everyone has to swear allegiance to Marduk and to Nebuchadnezzar and to his kingdom. Now his rule is supreme law. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stood out from the rest. That's not something they would do. Oh sure, they would go along with many things and promote law and order in their capacities as officials in the province of Babylon. And they would cooperate with all the other officials, including the king himself, in every way possible. They did that already during their training in the palace. But they would not do what they were asked to do here. For if they bowed down before Marduk, then they would at the same time be swearing allegiance to him. And they would be acknowledging that from now on Marduk is going to be their conscience and their guide. And there is no way that they were going to swear allegiance to a God and king and kingdom that demanded absolute obedience no matter what. They stood up for what they believed. That brings us to the second point. It's not always easy to stand up for you for what you believe, is it? How were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego able to do that? How could they allow themselves to be thrown into that fire? They knew it could cost them their lives. As I said in the beginning of my sermon, many others throughout the ages have had to sacrifice their lives for the sake of their faith. It happened early in the church, and it happened also during the time of the Reformation. Tomorrow, the Lord willing, we will be celebrating Reformation Day. And we can think about that time of Reformation. And at that time, Guido de Bref, for example, the author of the Belgian Confession, one of our beloved confessions, allowed himself to be hung. He was given every chance to renounce his faith in God, but he refused to do it. He was a husband and a father. He still had little children at home. He had so much to live for, and yet he refused to bend to the Roman Catholic authorities. Oh, sure, while he was still alive, he cooperated as much as possible. He was not deliberately defiant. He went along with whatever he could go along with in society. He even worshipped in secret, going from home to home in order not to draw attention to himself. He was against those who took part of the chanteries, the singing of psalms and hymns in the streets. For that was against the law. Guido was not rebellious against the authorities. He recognized the government and its right to rule and to make laws, even to make laws that were unpopular and perhaps even unjust. In that sense, he also bowed down to the gods of the age. But he bowed to the gods of the age, but he did not bow down to them. In other words, he did not worship them. He did not make them the most important thing in his life. He couldn't. For nothing and no one was more important to him than the Lord his God. 
He knew how others before him had been, had been in the same situation and had also stood firm. Also the apostle Peter was dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and was told not to teach in the name of Jesus. But he and the other apostles said that it is more important to obey God. And so they said, as we read in Acts 5 verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. They knew that such defiance could cost them their lives, but they stood up nevertheless. How do you come to be able to take such a strong stand? Could you? Could I? Brothers and sisters, you do that through God's strength, who puts you all your life through trial and also through error. He teaches you, he trains you, for we all need to be trained. Peter needed to be trained. For example, Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times, and then the Lord Jesus confronts him, and he repents, and so he forgives him. Peter learned from this. When he denied the Lord Jesus, he did this in a moment of weakness. It was not a life-defining moment. But when it came to the nitty-gritty, he stood up for God. And that is because he had learned to do that throughout his life. He had learned to make God the most important person in his life. He allowed himself to be trained in godliness, knowing what is good and right in the sight of God. Most of you probably remember what happened in January 2009 in the city of New York when an airplane safely landed on the Hudson River without the loss of a single life. Everyone credited the great skills of the pilot for that apparent miracle. And this is what happened. Shortly after takeoff, an aircraft with many passengers on board ran into a flock of geese, of Canada geese. Both engines were severely damaged and lost all power. Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions in rapid succession if they were going to save the lives of the people not only on board but also on the ground. They quickly realized that they had only one option, namely to land on the Hudson River. It is very difficult to crash land on water. If you make just one tiny mistake, then the plane will turn over and break up and sink. Within the short space of only three minutes, Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to perform intricate and Herculean tasks. They had to think of an enormous amount of details before they could land that plane. Everything had to be done just right and in the right order. The plane had to be at the right speed, at the right angle, and with a nose up in exactly the right way. The amount of details and things they had to think of were mind-boggling. Somehow they did it. Against all odds, they safely landed that plane on the river. And after that plane landed, Captain Sullenberger calmly and coolly made sure that everyone got off onto the wings, ready to be rescued. And then he went back into the interior of that plane several times to make sure that no one was left behind. During all this, he kept a cool head. He was the last man off the plane. How do you think 
he was able to do that. Many people call it a miracle. There are very few pilots in the world with the experience and the discipline that could have done what he did. Well, it's not that Sullenberger was born with an innate ability to do this. He wasn't born with the ability to fly a plane, nor did he acquire all those many skills that he exhibited in only a few lessons. No, this man had learned these things through rigorous discipline and through trial and error. He learned to be such a good pilot by practice, by always wanting to be better, by being conscientious. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to stand up and do what they did because they had trained all their lives for that moment. They had made God the most important person in their lives. And they had practiced that already from a very young age. Let me ask you, who or what is the most important thing or person in your life? No doubt you will say, it is the Lord God, I love him with all my heart. And I don't doubt that you mean it. But it is easy for you and for me to say when our livelihood is not at stake. It is easy to say when we have our stomachs full and a nice house to live in and a loving family and friends. But what if your life is in the balance and you have to make such a confession? Could you do it? Well, the only way that you can do that, brothers and sisters, is by always making God the most important person in your life. Also in all the little things. But you have to train yourself for that. Are you doing that? It's never too late. You can start today to begin by thinking about what is most important in your life right now. So let me ask you, how do you want to make an impression in this world? What do you want your legacy to be? Do you want others to, what do you want others to see when they look at you? That you're a successful person? That you're kind and loyal? That you're sweet or rich or powerful? That you are someone who loves your family more than anything else? That you are a good and faithful member of the church? Of course, it is good that you aspire to such things. And you may have acquired some of that. But you and I, we are far from perfect. And so, what happens if someone criticizes you? Or what if some of that was taken away from you? If through their criticism they somehow hold up a mirror to you. And it doesn't exactly reflect what you think they should see. Do you then become angry? Do you then become angry because you don't want to see what they see? In other words, have you made an idol of yourself? Are you an idol worshiper? And what about your family? Oh, sure, it's good to be loyal to your family. But what about if someone criticizes your family? How do you deal with that? 
Do you try to keep your family together at all costs? Do you not discipline your child or say anything to any of your family members for the sake of peace? Of course, it is good to keep the peace. And you have to be discerning as to when to say something and when not. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty, are you allowing sin to prevail? That should not prevail within yourself, within your family. You see, it is in this way that we make idols in our own lives. Idols of ourselves, of our families. We have to think what is most important in our lives. Do you dare to say no when you have to? Do you dare to say no to your boss when he asks you to do something that you shouldn't? Do you dare to say no to a union that wants you to break the law of God and the law of this country? Young people, do you dare to say no to your friends when they want you to go somewhere or do something that you know is wrong? Are you training yourself to stand up for your faith? Ask yourself, what do you want out of life? What kind of, pre- impression, what kind of impression do you want to make on others? Do you want to impress others with the kinds of things that you possess? The beautiful home that you have? The good job that you have? Or the education that you have? It's fine to be proud of these things. But those are not the kinds of things that should define you or me. As if they are more important than God. You cannot put God on the back burner. God is number one in our lives. We may not have idols in our lives. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you and I, we have to train ourselves not to make anything we own more important than God. Else you are not going to essentially be any different than Nebuchadnezzar and all those other people that were bowing down to him and his God. And then you are just as guilty of the blood of others. For then you partake of their sins. And that is what will happen to you and to me if we do not daily repent from our sins. If we do not daily get down on our knees before God. And if you do that, even though you may stumble and fall all the time as we do, also Peter did. But then when it comes to the nitty gritty, I guarantee you that you will not deny the Lord your God. For then he is so much part of you that you do not want to give him up you cannot give him up you are trained not to give him up and it is at moments like that that he will also give you strength to stand up to stand up for your faith to stand up for what you truly stand for to stand up for God the wonderful thing is that this gives you also an enormous amount of freedom in this life and the life you're after And that's the third point. That's what he did to the friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God gave them freedom. King Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He could not understand that there would be someone who would defy him. 
that someone would allow someone else or something else to be more important than he and his God and everything that he stood for. He could not let that go. He saw that as a threat. But then we see a miracle happen. We see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. However, only three have been thrown into that fire. One of them, Nebuchadnezzar notices, looks like a son of the gods. In verse 28, he is identified with an angel. Some commentators wonder whether or not this was the pre-incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ, before he manifested himself in the flesh. Many think that it was he. We see him more often in the Old Testament as coming down to earth as an angel of light. Whatever the case, it is certainly God who intervenes here. God is walking with them and among them in that fire. God has set them free from the bondage of their fetters and the scorching flames. How wonderful it is for these men to experience God's presence and to be rescued from the flames. How great it is to be free. How great it is to be rescued from evil. Through faith, they were able to withstand and overcome. They knew the kind of God whom they were serving. serving. He is the God of their deliverance. He has shown his miraculous power to them and to their nation in so many ways. He is the one who delivered them from Egypt and from slavery. And these men trusted him. Brothers and sisters, we can do the same. We have that same God. And God will also rescue you no matter how difficult your situation may be. Even when you stare death in the face. You may know that God will be with you and rescue you. Think about it. The Lord God has won over the evil one through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ went through the fire for you and for me. He went through the fire of hell. He did this so that you and I will never have to experience hell or hellish anger as long as we put our trust in him. For the Lord Jesus Christ was totally abandoned by God. Why? So that we would never have to be abandoned. So that we can withstand whatever the devil wants to throw at us. And we also know that God has stored up for us an enormous riches. It's ours for free. We can walk around in freedom without being in bondage to our own possessions, to our own reputation, to the image that we want to create to others. We are free from sin. For through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. We may have peace. None of those things can hold us. No one and nothing owns us. The devil doesn't own us. God does. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of all honor and praise. Him alone we must serve. Amen.